0: This morning we start a new series uh, for the fall. We're going to work through Paul's letter to, well his letters, both of them, um, his letters to the Thessalonian Church. And we're going to take each week uh, this fall to explore um, the subject matter of these letters, which really has to do with living in between what theologians call the already and the not yet. The already of what Christ has done and accomplished. Through uh, his incarnation and the life that he lived and his death at the cross and his resurrection. There's a lot of things about the kingdom of God that were established already. But then there's a lot of things that come into the category of not yet. Things that are realized with his return. And we as believers live in this period of time of the already and the not yet. And so we ask ourselves some deep questions, thoughtful questions, and, and posture ourselves... Uh, really intentionally about how we live our lives in that way. And as we do this, it's, of course, against the backdrop of God's tremendous grace of who Christ is and what he has done. And so I hope that you're encouraged, as I have been encouraged, studying these texts. And we're going to go through uh, these letters. So we're going to start today with the first chapter, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians... In God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Remembering that with, without the ceasing of your work of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord is sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we don't need to say anything. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us, and how you turned to God from idols, to serving the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. So, as we begin this. Exploring this passage, we see that Paul introduces himself and a couple of companions. Sylvanius is Silas, and uh, he was one of the companions of Paul, and he went on a couple of missionary journeys with Paul, and he actually went with Paul to Thessalonica. So the Thessalonians know Silas personally and intimately. And then secondly, there's Timothy, who also uh, worked with Paul. Timothy, interestingly, had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. So his dad's side is Greek, so the Thessalonians... Uh, can appreciate that heritage and all the, the nuances and things that that means. But his mom and his grandmother, his mom's side, was Jewish. So Timothy was discipled in the scriptures by his mother and his grandmother. His mom Eunice and his grandmother Lois. And Paul commends them for the theological formation that those women did in the life of Timothy. Because, of course, his dad, coming to saving faith as a Greek, would not have the knowledge of the scriptures. He would have been also taught by Eunice and Lois, and so I mention that because these are the sorts of things that were completely countercultural at the time, uh, to have women have that sort of a prominent, formative place in the life of men, but we see this in the church where uh, the men and women are working shoulder to shoulder in the New Testament church in a powerful and beautiful way, and you can read all about uh, this encounter with the Thessalonians in Acts chapter 17 because the book of Acts is a history book. And a lot of what happens in the pastoral letters, you can go back in the book of Acts and say, oh, let's see how that played out. And some of that stuff is there. So in Acts chapter 17, just to give you some context before we dive right in, Paul and Timothy and Silas, they go to a few places. They go to Athens, Berea, and Thessalonica. When they go to Athens, the Athenians are like, oh, this is interesting there. Paul is on Mars Hill teaching in the shadow of the Aeropagus, and you've got the temple to Diana prominently here, and then to the left of that, down the hill, there's, a, there's this sort of par, uh, Parthenon carved out of stone, where there was no ancient streaming services, and so one of the ways you would entertain yourself was you would sit in the street, and you would listen to people stand up, like open mic, and share their philosophy, and Paul would get up, and uh, when I was in Athens, I was struck by how close all of this was, as I stood where Paul stood, I made, I made sure I stood where he stood, because I just stood on all the steps, I ran up and down all of them. I was like, there, I definitely got the right one. He was on. And it's striking how close these things are together. And uh, so they listened about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And the Athenians were like, okay, we want to hear you again on this. Now, some of them said you're drunk. But some of them said we want to hear you again. Because, of course, the Greek view of the afterlife is you leave the material, this, this gross and decaying material stuff, and you go off into the spiritual, the ethereal the heavens, right, the afterlife. So the Greek philosophers like Plato, uh, Plato and Plutarch, they would talk about the afterlife like you leave the material and you end up in the ethereal, right? So when you hear Christians say things like, when I die, I go to heaven, and then I'm looking down on my family, and all this sort of language, that's not the language of the New Testament, that's actually highly influenced by Plato and Plutarch, because When God created all things, he didn't create the earth as like, you know, middle earth where all the muddles and the hobbits are, and then there's this heaven where we all escape this muddly material place and spend eternity there, and then he creates another place called hell where the bad people go. That's not the New Testament. It's not good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Only bad people go to heaven. There's only one kind of person. The sinner, right? The person that doesn't want God. The person that wants to be God. That's all of us. And so... That was that's what happened in Athens. Was they were like, We want to hear you again because you're saying that this resurrection of Jesus Christ was material. And you're saying that we're gonna have a resurrection after we die, and that's gonna be material. And you're saying that the heavens is actually the, the cosmic kiss between the realm where God is and this realm where we are, and all things will be restored as they were in Genesis, where God and humanity walked in the physical garden together. You're saying that the end game is the renewal of this planet. They said, the Athenians said, we want to hear you again about this. They're interested now. It's touched something in the human soul that says, please tell me that there's more to being human. Please tell me that we can enjoy you know, civic life where there's, we don't just you know, wipe the blood from our swords and build a new civilization. Please tell me. It touched something. This cosmic God of justice and mercy. So that was what happened in, in Athens. And then when they went to Berea, they talked about the resurrection. And the Bereans were like, we've got to study the scriptures to see if this is true. And the Bereans were dialing into all the Old Testament texts to see, is Jesus Christ actually the Messiah that was prophesied throughout the scriptures? That's what happened in Berea. And then in Thessalonica, Paul was only here for three weekends. And he got run out of town. He goes to the synagogues. He's teaching that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the scripture. He's only there for three Sabbaths. And then the work he's doing during the week. And a bunch of Greeks come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the text in Acts 17 says Greeks and prominent women. And And it gives us that text, which is interesting, because the prominent women would have meant that in the Greek culture, they were either business women, they were involved politically, or they had positions of influence in the city in civic ways. But nevertheless, the Greek is this church in Thessalonica is full of Greeks and these prominent women who are likely also Greek. But he's only there for three weeks and he's run out of town because all the religious folks who deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ—they want to stamp it out. They want to say that uh, you know these are lies uh, perpetuated by the disciples, despite the fact that there were hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses who were still alive. This, le- this letter to the Thessalonians is one of the earliest, arguably the earliest letter. It's written around 49 AD, and Jesus Christ resurrected in 33 AD. So it's not like hundreds of years went by and you know, these myths are arising. It's like everybody who's, there's hundreds and hundreds of people, many of which who saw the resurrected Christ are still running around proclaiming that he is who he claimed to be, God incarnate. And so. He, got, he gets run out of town in three weeks, and he's worried about this church. Because can you imagine if in 2015, Susan and I and the small team that were planting Redeemer here, we, we start the church, and we're all excited. And some of you were here that very first Sunday, and we're like, oh, let's preach the goodness of Jesus and his love and his grace and our city. And then four weeks later, you guys come to Redeemer, and you're like, where's Paul? And they're like, he got run out of KW man There were some people that didn't like what he was teaching And they threatened him with his life And he's gone And so now here I am And This is what happened So Paul sends Timothy and Silas To be like, how are the Thessalonians doing And they come back to him and they're like Paul, they got some problems They're worried about some things But they're doing great And Paul is thrilled That's why we have this letter so he's writing this letter to this volatile little church. It's like it's in an incubator. He's like, he wants to care for it. He wants to help organize it. That's what's going on. And despite all of the challenges that they were having, which we're going to unpack over the next number of weeks, um, Paul was really grateful that there's two undeniable things going on. One, there's an undeniable power of the Holy Spirit uh, taking place in their lives. And secondly, there's, which leading, leading to secondly, this unmistakable change. And so then there's these three Christian virtues, which we're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at, that Paul mentions. Faith, love, and hope. And after Paul penned these words of faith, love, and hope, ancient Etsy just started firing up wooden signs ever since. That's not true. But this morning we're going to look at a handful of things here. We're going to look at the work of faith, the labor of love, the endurance of hope, why is indwelling power? Now, I know there's four things up there. And I'm as nervous as you are. What are the homiletical implications of this? So next Sunday I'm gonna have two points to restore balance to the force. So relax. Okay, now the work of faith, uh, I put the Greek up there, ergon, to, to, to show you that the work of faith and labor of love, we use work and labor almost interchangeably, but there's a beautiful nuance in the language, so that's why I'm doing this. If you're new to the scriptures, don't worry. You don't need to know Greek and Hebrew to understand the Bible at all. You're going to get the, you're going to get the message of the Bible in whatever language it's been translated in uh, for you. You're going to get the message. Uh, but sometimes there's nuances in language, as you know, and it's nice to pull them out. So uh, this, this work of faith is the vocation. It's like saying faith had a job to do and it did it. Um, there's this divine change resulting in a transfer of trust... And the language suggests it's interesting because it's like there's two things in tandem. There's a cause and effect, this wonderful weaving. Faith is at work, and as a result, they're at work. And there's this, there's this intentional formation, the intentions of rhythm and rest and worship and meditation. It's all being built into the lives of the Thessalonians. Those of them who have children, they want to catechize the kids, just like we have catechism class here for our kids and for our university students They've, they've somehow turned their homes into the gymnasium of the soul, to use the language of, uh, of the North African theologian Augustine. Their home has become like the gymnasium of the soul, where they're just working out their faith. There's a lot of work going on, but it's all flowing from this vocation of faith, the, just this divine movement in their hearts and in their minds. It's powerful. And he wants to acknowledge that there's this work of faith, which leads us to the second thing, the labor of love. The labor of love is a different word because faith, that, that word, the word work, like vocation, there can be a lot of enjoyment in vocation. Many of us garner a lot of sense of enjoyment and fulfillment from our vocation. It's possible for that to be a positive thing. But the word here, labor of love, it's not actually a stimulating positive thing. The labor of love, which is a phrase we've come to use all the time. Ah, it's a labor of love. It actually means strenuous, hard, toiling, uh, to be made weary. And so it's an interesting choice of words to say it's the strenuous, hard work that's making me weary. And then he says the, work, uh, the labor of, and then the word for love is agape in the Greek, meaning this benevolent self-emptying, this constant preference of somebody else. Uh, this orientation away from the self to someone else, the object. That's why we say Jesus Christ in his cross is an image of agape love. It's the self-emptying, the preferential of another. And so this is interesting because he's saying that the evidence of their saving faith is that they're actually going through a lot of work for others that has nothing to do with themselves, and it's hard work. It's strenuous work, but they're willing to do it. They're actually doing hard, strenuous work um, To bring sort of renewal of their own lives and rhythms and practices. And it's really hard work. Now before I continue, let me just say a quick comment for those of you who might be exploring Christian faith this morning. Maybe one of the hang-ups you have about um, Christianity. It comes on a backdrop of disappointment or, to use a stronger word, even, even abuse and hurt. Maybe someone who claimed to be a Christian or a church that claimed to be Christ-like treated you in a way, did something in a way that was tremendously hurtful and damaging to you. Here's what you need to know about what faith does. The work of faith, faith that's true, has a job. And the job that it does is renewal. So if you've said, I can't... I can't be a Christian. I can't name the name of Christ and have my life de- be defined by a cross of Christianity because look at all the hurt and sorrow that these, these idiots that call themselves Christians have brought into the world. What I would say to you is, firstly, I'm sorry for the, the hurt and the pain that you went through. Uh, and it's good for you to recognize that someone who's nothing like Christ does not have true faith. That's the work of that faith does. So you've been hurt, devastated, abused by a religious person who's not actually a believer because if they were a true believer faith would have done its work and if faith had done its work they wouldn't have done what they did. That's what true faith does. It's a cause and effect. Christians are not saved by the good lives we live. Because if that were true, I would be damned, first and foremost, and then all of you would be too. Because all of us fail to be perfect image bearers of God, bearing his love, his mercy, his selflessness. Even if you're an agnostic or an atheist, you wouldn't stand in a line that says, I'm perfect. You wouldn't wear a button that says... I walk out all of my values with perfection. Because everybody knows that something in the world is somewhat sideways, that at the core of the human soul, none of us are even able to live up to our own values and standards. Right? So we know that to be true. And so therefore, the work of faith is to do renewal. And so Christians, we're not saved by the the wonderful and good Christ-like lives we live. We're saved by his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. That's what saves us. But if the faith is true that true faith actually has a vocation, and it's renewal. The the hurt, the sadness, the disappointment, the abuse that you experienced from that person, or that church, or that movement... you are not going to find those characteristics in Jesus. You're going to find the opposite of those things in Jesus... because Christ Jesus is none of those things. So the reason Paul is so thrilled... About this church in Thessalonica, he's like, I had three weeks to preach the gospel. I got run out of town, and now the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit is doing real renewal, real work, where there's real life change and it's palpable. People have heard about it and they know about it. So that's this produced then this labor of love, where they're willing to do hard work. They're willing to change their patterns, their habits. They're willing to reorient their priorities. Whatever those things may be in ancient Thessalonica, you and I think about the priorities of our culture and the ways in which we may reorient them. Maybe it's the way we use our money. We've answered the question, how much is enough? (laughs) So we can be generous to care for the poor, to care for the needs, to look outside of our own uh, selves. Right? Maybe it's the way we use our money that gets rewritten. The way we relate to the poor. Right? The, the number one conversation of our lifetime at the moment. Sexual practices, sexual ethics. The way that they related to sexuality in ancient Thessalonica. That was different than the way the culture related to it. The way that the renewing power of faith doing its work causes us to relate differently. The way that they would have related to women and children and and social classes and different cultures in the church. You would go into the ancient church of Thessalonica, and where there would normally be class divisions, there's no class divisions. And where there would normally be racial tension, there's no racial tension. Because now they're being defined by a cross. So they don't all abandon their cultures and come into this homogenous thing called Christian culture, of which there is no such thing. The cross beautifies their cultures so now they're celebrating the multiplicity of diverse culture but it's all now being aligned into a congruence with the gospel of Jesus Christ and so now that's affecting the way that they would relate to things in that ancient context that would have played out in ways that were really striking the men and women have equal dignity the men and women have given equal sense of care as they shoulder uh, the love and the care and the ministry of the gospel together in a way that wouldn't have been found in the culture. That the slaves and the and the slave owners, to use those economic terms of ancient Greco-Roman Greece, right? That in the culture there was a division. You'd go into the church, and there would be people that the culture considered slaves who were leaders in the church. And there would be people who the cultures who the culture would consider to be masters, who were actually working shoulder to shoulder with who the culture would call slaves. The the church was this weird anomaly where suddenly there was this gorgeous and powerful unity in the ancient culture often the women were property sexual property you go into the church and suddenly now one man is committed in a lifelong covenant relationship and gives himself sexually to one woman nothing like the surrounding culture and then if you're a single person you're like well actually i'm not defined by how I'm engaging sexually. That's not the means and pathways to freedom or identity or telling me who I am as a person. In fact, I can be single and enjoy a fulfilled life as a single person. Not like it's some sort of sickness or disease that has to be solved. And all of a sudden, the, 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 the marriage and the singles in the church are relating in a way that just wasn't found in the culture. And that is hard work, strenuous work. That's why that that word is used. It's like a strenuous toil. But they were willing to do it. It was fueled by love. They weren't dragging their knuckles. They weren't like, well, this is what you've got to do to be a Christian, I guess. And, Well, this is terrible, but I guess this is my lot in life. Now, they, they, were, they did it joyfully. They were putting in the hard work, and they were happy to do it. It's funny, I was thinking, like, what's an example of this? And I remember somebody who loved cycling, and they were like, well, people who do the Tour de France, you know, they love it, but also they have to be okay with pain, but they love it. And I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll use that analogy for labor. But then I thought of this other analogy for labor. Labor. (laughs) So I'm told labor's hard. Pain from front to back. Allegedly. But there's this tremendous joy that you women, even though the the pain and the sweat and the the sorrow and all of it, there's this tremendous joy that is unspeakable as you enjoy the glorious uh, gift that is your children. And so there is this labor that is being driven by this love. In verse 10... There's a striking, the passage ends with a striking phrase that I want to work into the labor of love. And it's the phrase that Jesus Christ, the one who raised us from death, will deliver us from wrath. The modern mind hears the word wrath and assumes that, that this God of ours is a God of wrath, which is not true. He is a God of love who relates to particular things with wrath. Wrath is not the opposite of love. Indifference is the opposite of love. If your child is going towards a light socket with a wet finger and you're like, they gotta learn somehow, that indifference is not love. If someone in your life is having their life destroyed by a decaying, eroding addiction and you just sit back and watch them destroy their lives, that lack of inaction is not love. That indifference is hate. That's how the New Testament r- refers to hate. It's like, just let it happen. You just, you just go to your death and we just watch it happen. God, being a God of wrath, his wrath is not poured out towards us, his beloved creation. His wrath is poured out like a mama bear towards the threat. Mess with the mom's kids. To see what happens. Try it. If the mom loves the child and this destructive force comes in, you better head for the hills, son. Because the wrath that comes out is motivated by love for the beloved. You can't even understand God's wrath unless you understand God's tears. Because biblically, God's wrath is being poured out on the sin, the powers of darkness, the destruction, the forces that are... A barrier to the, fear, the flourishing of his children. You see, the word "wrath" in the Greek implies that it's not like God goes, "That's it. I've had enough," And then he executes judgment. It's not this like volatile thing that ramps up. The word "wrath" in the Greek it means it's a fixed, passionate feeling. It's a settled, unchanging indignation. And God has been a God of love since before he created anything, hence the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It's a mystery, I know, but they loved and all creation was born forth of that love. And in Genesis, right from the jump, from the beginning, when humanity rejected God, when our federal representatives, Adam and Eve, said we reject God, we will find fulfillment apart from God, that fruit, that poetry of that fruit being an, a, a symbol of 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 filling and nourishing and finding fulfillment and joy, sever the relationship with God. In the original Hebrew, be God, right? That's what they wanted. And what was God's response to that divine treason? Mercy. Grace. What does he do to his beloved creation? He covers them. An animal is sacrificed, blood is shed, he covers them. Then what, does, what is God's disposition towards the sin that broke his beloved creation? It is wrath. And it's been that since Genesis 3. It's been that from the beginning. So something's not ramping up until God loses his temper like you and I would lose our temper. God's not losing his temper. He's always had that position. That's why Greek theologians would look back on Genesis and call Genesis chapter 3 the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel, which means the very first time the gospel was preached, it's God preaching the gospel to who? The enemy in the Hebrew, the Satan. What is the first gospel in Genesis 3? It is from her seed, one will come and You will bruise his heel, Satan, the Satan, the enemy, the accuser. You will bruise his heel and he will bruise your head. Death blow. God's wrath was already made steadfast right from Genesis 3. He's like, I'm going to bring an end to the destructive forces that are decaying, my beloved. This is how we must understand this. Therefore, the gospel of Jesus Christ, God incarnating himself in Jesus Christ... The life that he lived, going to the cross, it's not just divine parlor tricks. It's not for no reason. It is him doing what needs to be done. It is his labor of love. The cross is his labor of love. It is so that his wrath, the sorrow, the sadness, is so that his judgment is poured out. Where? Where is it poured out? On himself. This is the God of cosmic grace that we can't grasp. So you see, it's not like Plato and Plutarch and the Greek philosophers talked about it where it's like we just live in earth here, we muddle around in the physical, and if you're good enough, you go to the divine place, and if you're bad enough, you go to the bad place, and then if we're not really sure, you go to the middle place, there's all these places, it's not like that. God is like, I'm a God of love and I'm going to destroy the thing that has destroyed my creation, and I'm going to bring renewal to all things. So what does that mean then for the believer and the unbeliever? Well, it's clear. It means that for those of us who turn to Christ and trust in Christ and t- trust in who he is, we get the same resurrection that Christ did. Those, of us, those who do not, do not receive the resurrection that Christ did. But here's the thing. Contrary to the modern vernacular about God, quote-unquote, sending people to hell, read the scriptures over and over, read them over and over, go back to back, go front to back, my friend. God is not sending us anywhere. He's not sending we're rejecting he's not hiding you can go anywhere on the planet and draw a cross in the sand with your finger and everybody knows what that means he's not hiding we've done what we've been doing from Genesis so to borrow from the writer C.S. Lewis who was once an atheist when he came to saving faith he said it this way you read the scriptures and you realize that the gates of hell are locked from the inside that was his way of saying we don't want God we've never wanted God and we still don't want God And so it is God in his great mercy who from the jump has been moving towards those who do not want him, who reject him, who want nothing to do with him. And that has been his labor of love, which leads to the next thing, the endurance of hope. The endurance, this patient steadfastness. And this hope is, it's not fingers crossed. It's not the way we use hope. It's an anchor. It's confident expectation. It is a powerful, stabilizing force. In extremely difficult times. You notice in verse 4, he describes the Thessalonians as beloved and elect. Well, that's pretty interesting language. Because up until this point, who's that been reserved for? He's calling Greeks elect. (laughs) Up until now, the only people who've been called elect are the Jews. So why is he calling the Greeks elect? Because to be elect is to say that you have been beloved. You have been chosen. What does that mean? John chapter 1 verse 12. As many as receive him, to them he is given the right to be called children of God. And so from the beginning, if we go back to Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, through you all the nations will be blessed. That was God's plan. God's plan was the Jewish nation bless every other nation. And of course being the, the the sinners that humans are. They didn't do that. And so they just the Old Testament chronicles failure, right? But that was God's plan from the beginning. So what has God done now through Jesus Christ? The greater temple, the greater high priest, the ultimate sacrifice. Through him, all the nations will be blessed. And now he's calling the Greeks elect. Imagine me, a Thessalonian, knowing that it's like these are God's chosen people who... God chose them th- through them. The world would be blessed. But the rest of us are sort of on the outside. That was the language. We're chosen. You're not chosen. We're on the inside. You're on the outside. And all of a sudden you get a letter calling you the elect. Come on, man. It's amazing grace. And so this is just, just this tremendous image of God's glorious grace. His sovereignty is manifested in the way of moving towards those who are constantly rejecting so when we use that language of being elect and chosen and predestined in God, it's a way of saying there's a mystery here. God is sovereign. None of us can be saved apart from his grace. And while that's true, he has also given, a- given us agency that requires, first and foremost, a moving of the Holy Spirit and a preaching of Christ. None of us just wake up and be like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Jesus. Nobody does that. Nobody wants God. Nobody has, no de- nobody has any desire for God. So therefore, his grace must come to us first. That's what we mean by sovereign. But election is this mystery. It's like saying God is... So- it's like a doorway to borrow from uh, Ferguson, St. Clair. Or St. Clair, Ferguson. It's like a doorway that says sovereignty. And then you walk through the, so- the door that says sover- or, uh, sovereignty. And it says welcome to the elect. It's like the door on the outside says sovereignty. Choose Jesus. What? That looks like I'm supposed to exercise my will. Okay, fine. I'll respond to the gospel. And you walk in and the other side says welcome to the elect. Which is it? Relax, theologians, we don't need to to tighten up that tension. The Bible never tightens up the tension. It just says, get lost in God's greatness and you'll find great rest in your smallness. Which leads to the last thing as I close this morning. His indwelling power. All of this is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says that they had joy in their affliction. It's not persecution. This is around 49 AD. And we know that, like, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 AD, that's when Nero really made things exciting. And, and this is, we're a little bit, you know, it, we're not yet at the point in church history where uh, they're yelling, Ad Christianes de Leone, the Christians to the lions. So we're not there yet. This affliction means pressure. It's the Greek word phlipsis. They would use it in regular language to say, you're applying constant pressure. For the purpose of extracting something. So in a couple of weeks, I'm going to go with my family and we're going to make some wine. And I'm going to afflict the grapes. They've got this press that they brought over from Calabria. One of the family friends has it. We bring it in. You put the grapes in. And it takes all afternoon to afflict the grapes. Because you've got to put pressure. So you put a little bit of pressure with the, with the press. Then you sit down, you talk, you have some food, you drink some wine, you get back up ten minutes later. Takes all day. Then once you've pressed it, you take all the grapes out of the press, and then we scoop them out, we put them back in, and you press it a second time. Takes. It's just constant, unrelenting pressure. That's the word that's used for the Thessalonians. What is that constant, unrelenting pressure? It's the culture. Now they're living completely different than the way that they were living before. But by the power of the spirit, they're not relating to it like, well, gosh, we, who wants to argue and fight about this? Am I right? Let's just say that whatever the culture's up to, that's also what we're up to. It's all okay. God permits it. They don't do that. They don't capitulate to the culture under the pressure. But you know what else they don't do? They don't posture themselves like a, war, like a, like a righteous you know, warrior against the culture. They have joy. They just sit in the pressure and they just live their lives and they're unmoved by the power of the Spirit. And that is my prayer for us, church. And it says that their example went out to Macedonia and Achaia. How do you do that? Macedonia is 100 kilometers away. That's like from here to Toronto. Achaia, 600 kilometers away. That's like from here to Montreal. How did they hear about these, this little ragtag group of rebels? How did the Christians 600 years, or 600... Uh, You know, miles away, hear about this. They didn't have, like, ancient Graham. Hey, do my devos. How did they hear about it? Thessalonica was a cosmopolitan trading city. People would come in for work, and they would do their business, and they'd go back to where they were from. It's like they were able to be a sending church. Praise God, right here in Kitchener-Waterloo, we've got people coming into this church. You're going to worship with us for a while. Your vocations may take you elsewhere. Students, I'm looking at you. You come here, you receive the gospel, you receive the goodness of God's word. You grow, you leave, you go to other cities, you go to other countries. Sending church. May what God has begun in this church continue in us today. May, by the power of his grace, may we put off our old ways, put on the glory uh, and the new humanity of the one who saved us in grace. May our lives be marked by the work of faith, the labor of love, and the endurance of hope. Let's pray.